This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Joseph goes in and bows in! Dudley's left it! Well, if they're in trouble before, they are definitely taking on water now. They're 59 for four, still trailing by six. Hello, I'm John Norman, host of the following on podcast from Talk Sport, which follows England's path through the three tests, five ODIs and three T20s here in the Caribbean. And uh, while it may be sunny in the West Indies, there's a dark cloud hanging over England after they were dominated in the second test. Jimmy Anderson, new over, short and pulled away by Campbell for the winning runs. He punches the air in celebration. The West Indies have beaten England. Can it get any worse? Well, join us every day to find out. It's the following on podcast, and we'll see if the West Indies can make it a clean sweep. Welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us on this Monday morning. And I'm especially psyched because in the studio with us is Mr. Matt Hughes, who I will reference. We have a wonderful story in the paper today with Foster from uh, uh, from Wofford talking about middle-aged men in Lycra <laughs> um, and how he joined the ranks of the, the, the mammals, I think was the, uh, was the technical term. Now, Hughie, you're not wearing Lycra today, but you have done in the past. Is that right? As recently as yesterday. Fantastic. I should stress for cycling purposes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It wasn't some form of cosplay or anything, was it? No. Okay. And better yet, down the line, I cannot confirm whether he's wearing Lycra or not, but I'll leave it to your imagination. It's Paul Hurst. Later on, we'll be talking about Pep Guardiola surprising us again, plus agents and intermediaries. But we start at the King Power Stadium, where Manchester United moved to within two points of a place in the top four, winning 1-0 at Leicester. United were 11 points off fourth place when Jose Mourinho was sacked. Since then, caretaker Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has taken 22 points from a possible 24. So, Paul, are we reaching a stage where there might be uproar amongst the fans if he wasn't given the job on a permanent basis? Yes, I think we are reaching that stage. It's... um... It's amazing the start that, that Solskjaer has had, like you say, 10, 10 wins out of 11. 
um, unbeaten at the moment, um, and he's really, you know, he's really got a, a, a lot of lot of support from the from the fans. They really they really got behind him. Uh, like I say, he's, he's dropped two points, and to go from an eleven point gap to a two point gap in the space of uh, less than two months is is quite remarkable, really. Uh, and they do they sing about him all the time. Obviously, he was a a legend after what happened in in ninety nine and his his entire time on the playing staff. But they they do love him. And when Solskjaer got the job, he, he spoke to people at the club and they were saying, "Oh yeah, it's a good kind of interim appointment, but it'd be highly unlikely that he would get the job full time." And now, you know, a couple of months later, he's he's looking, you know, very you know, very much a contender for it. I don't see how he can't be considered a contender after such a, an amazing start. I don't, I don't think anyone thought that he'd have such a good start and the players are playing for him, the players are really enthusiastic about playing for him and he just seems to have completely turned the club around. So for Woodward not to consider him would be a, a huge mistake. Okay, well, you're pointing out Woodward's potential mistakes, but what do we actually know about what the club are actually doing. Because it seems to me that, you know, there's a pattern, right? So manager gets sacked, and then there's all this this speculation, mostly driven by Matt Hughes and his anti-Spurs agenda about Pochettino and whatever else. And um, and people suggest that, well, they'll get an interim boss while they go after the guy they really want. I think we all wrote it. I think that's what we were all told. I mean, from what you can tell, are, are they pursuing other candidates for next year? Are they actually trying to back-channel their way to Pochettino or or Simeone or whoever they might want? Or are they just saying, like, oh, look, Solskjaer's done so well. Let's sit on our hands for the next couple months and see how this goes. I think the public line is that they've always been looking for, looking to undertake a, you know, a, a thorough process to find the next manager, a quite a, you know, an extensive search, but it clearly is just between two people, isn't it? From 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 what I can tell, I don't know. Simeone was sort of looked at, but I just can't see him, you know, falling into that category. I think it is between Pochettino and Solskjaer, and I think it would be counterproductive for for Woodward to actually start even moving in sort of back channels to to, to speak to Pochettino and actually make a you know a, a proper solid uh, you know a proper approach because you know a it unsettles the Solskjaer and and B. I mean, there's no point in there's no real point when the when they're playing so well under Solskjaer. I think they will leave it right until the end of the season to to make a decision. What about the director of football role? I mean, that's something that you would think that they might want to do, regardless of who the new manager is, right? Are, are they doing an extensive search there as well? Yeah, apparently. So, I mean, that is you know that is just as important as you know, the managerial appointment in my opinion, because they've made so many so many errors recently when it comes to well, managerial appointments, uh, to transfers. And I know that's not just because they've not had a director of football. There are some problems in the scouting system, but just having that link between, you know, the first team and the first team coach and the and and Woodward is it's a pretty big gap that they've not filled, and it needs all with real football expertise and their real good scouting knowledge. Um, that is totally separate from the commercial side of the club, which is obviously doing fantastically well uh, to make United a, a more complete structure in terms of the hierarchy. Woodward's lack of football knowledge has really cost him to 
a certain extent over the last few years. United have lost ground because of that, and they need to get someone in now who does, who knows, you know, how football operates and knows, you know, the right targets to get, etc. Do you have any names that you can titillate us with about who they've been linked to? Uh, Monchi as has been mentioned, doesn't he, as a as a possible option. He did very well at Seville, but he's at, he's at Roma now, and apparently he's not not so happy at Roma and would quite like to be considered for for the United job. You know, whether Woodward approaches him or not is another matter. Paul Mitchell's obviously another one who's been mentioned as a possible appointment. He worked with Pochettino. He's worked with Pochettino before. So could there be that link up again there? Uh, I think they will consider people from within as well. I don't, I don't know whether anyone would go for it. Uh, there is a kind of, there's not a real obvious candidate from within at the moment. If you look at the scouting system, someone like Marcel Boot, maybe he was kind of, he's a remnant from the, the Van Gaal era, whether he'd go for it. I, I think, in my opinion, they need to look externally for it. They need a new, uh, a fresh pair of eyes. What should the criteria be, Husey? I think they need to get the manager first. sorted first, yeah. So with the manager then, obviously, who 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 should Edward would go for? Should it be Solskjaer, who's doing really well, or the more expensive option of Maurizio Pochettino? I don't think they should or will let finance cost be a factor. I think they should go for the best man they can get and who they believe to be the best man for the job. I mean, football's such a short-term industry that people get swayed by you know, very, very recent results. Ultimately, Pochettino has got a more impressive body of work going back a little longer period than Solskjaer, and you would, he appears to be a better fit in terms of he's a project manager, he develops young players, they play good football, he's not, obviously he wants to sign good players, but he's not very demanding in the way that Mourinho was, he's very diplomatic, he's kind of a good kind of corporate club guy. Solskjaer, we don't really know. He's done amazingly well. He clearly has a rapport with these players. He's a club icon, but in terms of his wider skills, we don't know. So I think if they wanted Pochettino in December, then they should still try and go and get him. And if they don't, if they can't get him, if he won't walk out on Tottenham, if Daniel Levy refuses to negotiate, then Solskjaer is a good plan B. So they're actually in a pretty strong position. And of course, there has been a precedent. We can think of Chelsea with Roberto Di Matteo, a beloved former player. He wins the Champions League, then gets sacked by Chelsea just six months later. Is it easy, Gab, to have a short-term impact when the dressing room is seemingly in turmoil? Well, Paul Ince thinks so. Uh, obviously, if you haven't seen the clip that's, that's gone viral, be treated by one Rio Ferdinand as well. And then he followed up with an explanation. But basically, he came out and he said, well, anybody could have done what he thought. He could have done what... Uh, what Solskjaer did, Steve Bruce, Sparky, all these guys could have done it. I mean, obviously you get a lift because United were underperforming the talent in their squad. I don't think it's quite that easy. I think being a longer-term manager brings with it other responsibilities, and I think Solskjaer just isn't tested into that. Uh, so I think he does have a point to some degree there. The Di Matteo analogy, which Ince brings up because Ince wrote an explainer, on the BBC website to sort of explain that, no, he's not mad, but he just uses Di Matteo as an example. The thing about that that I think some people don't realize is Di Matteo was was Andre Villas-Boas' assistant, and he was on assistant wages. And when he became the first-team coach, he was kind of promised a payoff at the end of the season for his time. We obviously didn't know that they were going to go win the Champions League. So the new contract he got was as much about that as it was about 
you know, they're like, oh, we won the Champions League. We got to give this guy a new deal. It's much about that than it is about necessarily believing that he was um, he was ideal to take to take the club forward. Yeah, I don't know if it's quite that simple. Also, you were covering the club at the time. Was the turmoil under AVB that bad? Uh, yeah, I'd say it was. I mean, it was a shorter period because he was only there six months, but it was. He'd certainly lost, as they say, those senior players. In fact, he'd been brought. He would say he'd been brought in to kind of move the club away from them, and the, as a result, dip the club lost the nerve and backed their players over him, um, which is broadly true. So, um, in, in in a sense, the, the club asked him to do one job. He, he tried to do it, and then they lost their nerve. But Paul, tell us then about the work that Solskjaer is doing behind the scenes and also that of Mike Phelan and Michael Carrick as well. I think from talking to people at the club, I don't think Solskjaer has you know, completely ripped up everything that Jose Mourinho was doing at the club. I don't, you know, they've not changed the training times or pitches and kind of ripped, you know, ripped everything up and changed everything at all. It's been quite simple, really. I think he's just basically spoken to the players. He talks to the players and he makes them feel loved, makes them feel wanted, makes them feel confident, really. He reminded them that they are they are very good players. I mean, you look at that squad and it is a really deep, um, talented squad. So, you know, there, there was absolutely no reason for them to be down in, in sixth position as they were under Mourinho. I, I, I do think he has... Behind the scenes, he's managed to, you know, reconnect, you know, the, the players with the, you know, the the traditions of Man United. Just little things like they've been, they they start wearing the they start wearing the club suits again to matches rather than track suits, uh, which you know is designed to bring an air of kind of professionalism to the um, to the squad. That's the intention there. Just little kind of mental things like that. Um, but in terms of Mike Phelan, he's been he's been instrumental as well. I think a lot of people at the club thought that David Moyes made a huge mistake in letting him go in 2013. He'd been at the club I think it was for 14 years on the coaching staff. He dealt with so many so many star players, so many egos. And if you think about all the, the kind of conflicts that there were or potential conflicts that there were during that time at United, particularly with Rooney and Ronaldo, when when they are therefore out. Alex Ferguson lent on Mike feeling quite a lot during that time to you know sort his counsel in terms of how to kind of deal with that. Um, so he's been instrumental um, in that. Uh, Michael Carrick just seems to be quite a he's a good link between the past and the and, and the present. He's he knows quite a lot of those players and obviously playing with them. So he puts his arm down people when they you know when they finish the warm up and he just has a kind of a connection to them and he's he's a really approachable person as well Carrick so you'll find that if players do have problems that Carrick is the one that they're likely to go to and Marcus Rashford of course he seems to be uh, improving six goals in eight league games under Solskjaer including the winner on Sunday so how much credit does Solskjaer deserve Paul a lot i, I just the difference between the Marcus Rashford under Jose Mourinho and the Marcus Rashford we see now is huge, really. He's playing him down the middle in a central striker's role, which has always been his best position. And he's just given him the confidence to, to play his natural game again. If you look at his finishing, it's far more composed than it was under Mourinho. I know he missed a, a quite an easy chance yesterday at the start against Leicester. But as soon as Pogba put that ball through for him yesterday, it was one touch and then a, a really... 
clinical finish. I think in the past you might have seen Max Rashford snatch at that and maybe drag it wide, but he was just so calm and composed and he just drilled it right into the corner. And, you know, as a result of his performance, I just can't see any way back for Lukaku under Solskjaer. That that central striker's role now is, is Rashford's to lose. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. It was a Manchester double on Sunday as the champion City eased past Arsenal 3-1 at the Etihad to keep the pressure on the leaders, Liverpool. It wasn't quite business as usual, though, for Pep Guardiola, who picked Fernandinho as a central defender, that despite the availability of John Stones, who was on the bench. So, Paul, what did you make of that selection and did you expect to see more of it going forward? It was very odd, wasn't it? We obviously get the team sheets an hour before kick-off and when they were being passed round, I just looked at the team and... Was, was looking for a left back for for quite some time in that eleven couldn't find one, and then I thought, oh well, is is Fernandinho going to play it right back? Is Walker going to play at centre half? Are they going to play Laporte, uh, Otamendi, and Walker as a three? Um, but it turned out that yeah, Fernandinho was the right sided centre half alongside Otamendi, and he was really kind of a, a quasi centre half. Really, he wasn't playing alongside Otamendi. More often than not, he just drifted into midfield and took up his his usual role. Uh, I think basically because Lacazette and Aubameyang were sitting so deep that, that Pep saw no reason to have two centre-halves playing. Um, so he, he just wanted another player in midfield. Uh, and it did, kind of, it did work. Otamendi was so often on his own that Fernandinho would, would push up and play his natural role again alongside um, Gundogan in midfield. I think he, he will, he, he could play a lot in the future. I don't see why he, he wouldn't play Fernandinho there when they play against teams who sit deeper. I remember him saying to us in China on a pre-season tour that, that Fernandinho can play in 10 different positions. He loves his versatility and obviously he played Mascherano as a centre-half at Barcelona, so he's, he's got form for that as well. So he's not afraid to throw the odd uh, of curveball when it comes to team selection. I mean, Delph and Danilo, who have both played left back, were on the bench as well. So this is very much a conscious decision. Laporte, of course, has pl- also played left back. I thought he was really good. Should he? I mean, given that, who the hell knows when, if Mendy's ever coming back? Could this be something that that that, that we see more of? I mean, obviously not necessarily for Nadine in the middle, but you know, you can play Stones and Otamendi and. You've got Laporte in there too, who I thought was pretty darn good. I think Laporte is one of the best passers at Man City, which tells you just, you know, and the competition is in that department is very, very, very strong. So that shows you just how good he is. Uh, I think it does help when he's not put under as much pressure. I mean, Iwobi was on the right wing for Arsenal yesterday and he was, he wasn't very good at all, barely got forwards. You know, he didn't really seem to fancy taking Laporte on. And Laporte did play at left back um, against Liverpool in the Champions League last season on field and just got, just got turned over uh, quite a lot, especially in the first half. So I don't think it's his natural position. I don't think he enjoys playing there that much. But when he's got time on the ball, when he's not pressed as much, when he's got you know when he can lift his head up and pass, he does he does look good there, and he, he offers a lot more defensive solidity than than Mendy does, for example. I, I'm not convinced by Danilo at left back. He just seems to make the wrong decision more often than not. 
and yeah, you know, I'd pick Delph over him. But you know, if if City are allowed to have the ball by the opposition, I think Laporte is is a good option at left back. He had players that could have played in their preferred positions, but chose to tinker with that. So Matt, could this be a sign then that Pep perhaps isn't entirely happy with the options he has in his squad? Uh, I think it's probably more a sign that, as we know, he likes his players to be versatile and flexible. Bear in mind, he's got Laporte, Stones and at some point Company to come back. Company's coming towards the end of his time at City, no doubt, but he's got a lot of options at, at centre-half and at full-back when all fit. Um, I thought it was a bit of a gamble, given that um, like a certain Aubameyang are Arsenal's most threatening players uh, so basically played with one centre half and Fernandinho stepping in was a gamble but it, 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 it worked off a defeat too Hughes. I mean I, this is what gets me right? we often have these hysterical reactions in the media right, where we all sort of you know throw our hissy fits and conventional wisdom proper football man wisdom would be like okay you lost in midweek they're pulling ahead you've got Everton coming up the following Wednesday you're playing Arsenal, who you know can can go up and down, but are, are dangerous. Just play it safe. Do what you do. Right? Do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 really counterintuitive for I thought for Pep to choose this game to go and to go and experiment, knowing that you know if this doesn't work out, then you look doubly stupid, and maybe the title goes. Yeah, sure, but Pep doesn't and then play safe. So um, yeah, I know. You know, credit to him. He saw something that we we haven't again. <laughs> again. But what about Arsenal then? An Unai Emery Gab. What, what's going on with their tactical setup? Is it possible for him to find that defensive solidity with the players at his disposal? No. <laughs> I mean, you would get the impression that they went to Emery and said, Look, we made some poor decisions before. You do what you want with the squad. You have a blank slate. You have my trust. I don't, you know, it was almost even symbolically in that game. Ramsey, Ozil are on the bench, right? That that was the... And I get it. Ramsey's leaving. Ozil's got his issues. Mickey, I'm assuming, is injured again. Um, but it, it really does feel like, you know, he's he's moving on. And I don't know what effect this is going to have on the club because they've got people there who are making an enormous amount of money and who are still going to be on their books, and that's going to hamper them. And it's, it's no good for him to say in this, you know, well, we can't, we can only do loans, but, you know, in the summer, then we can start signing again. I mean, how's that going to work if you finish fifth or sixth again, don't win the Europa League, and don't make Ozil and Mkhitaryan go away? I mean, I'm not picking on them, but, you know, these guys aren't playing. It's, it's weird. I, I don't understand where Denis Suarez Fitz, is he the replacement for, for Aaron Ramsey long-term? Is that the idea, Husey? Um Yeah, I think so, if it fits in, because the manager knows him, likes him, worked with him before, um, and he was available, I, I suppose. If it goes well, they'll, they'll try and sign him. But, I mean, I agree. <laughs> the mismanagement of Arsenal has been incredible for the but last the five case, years. Then- why why play four four two where there is no Dennis Suarez position in it? Well, he's only been at the club three days, so um, I no, think, I'm not saying you need, I'm not saying you need to start him, but why not play a lineup? Get people already. There's there's no reason he couldn't have played Iwobi, for example, uh, Iwobi in the hole, right? And then had Suarez come on for him, and gone four three one two with with Shaka as as a third midfielder. In fact, you might even say away from home against against a team like City, it might make more sense. I mean, I can only assume he wanted to be solid with the four in midfield, but also put on his his two 
only real golf golf threats because the, the midfield don't contribute goals. Awobi doesn't really contribute goals. The, neither of the midfield, Torreira's scored a couple, but the, neither of them are real goal scorers. So it was a sort of very much a mix and match selection, I, I kind of think. And the funny thing is, for like for 35 minutes, first half, it actually worked. They played pretty well. But when you've got that back four and again City, you're always going to concede goals. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There were emotional scenes at the Cardiff City Stadium on Saturday at Cardiff's first home game since the disappearance of record signing Emiliano Sala. Matthew Syed has written for The Times this morning on the subject of what the transfer of Sala has revealed about the inner workings of football. As Matthew points out, agent Willie Mackay, who is not Sala's personal agent, was acting as a broker for the deal, something Mackay himself wrote about in a piece published in L'Equipe in France. Matt, is this commonplace within the game then to have intermediaries and why is that? Um, well, it depends if you're being cynical or not. Um, good way of... I can't imagine you not being <laughs> cynical. <laughs> it's a very good way of dispersing money, um, for one, having multiple involvements. I guess the clubs will say these people get the deals done and ultimately they're, they're happy to pay what to normal people is huge amounts of money but to football clubs isn't um so yeah it is it's it is pretty commonplace i i don't i don't like it i think it's clear the open to corruption and conflicts of interests I'm not talking about this case i'm talking just generally you can have an agent who works for the a club and a player in the same deal you can have a agent who represents a manager at a football club and then brings players in for that manager which happens all the time which I think is clearly, clearly conflicted, um, and FIFA are trying to change it. They're, they're trying to get rid of what they call dual representation, which is by an agent can represent a club and a player in the same transaction. I, I think what gets me about intermediaries, and I, I think they do have a function in the game. I, I, I don't think they're just leeches and whatever, but I think their function in the game is not have this guy that not aren't very good they have this guy that they need to cash in on he's having a good run you know they can't put a for sale sign on him they can't go and start ringing up other clubs hey do you want to buy Emiliano Sala because it would be humiliating would drive your price down so you hire somebody you know Sala's agent you don't necessarily want him going around trying to find a club for you because at the same time he's got to answer to Salah and to the fans or whatever. And and plus, you know, it's frowned upon, right, when an agent tries to broker a deal for a guy to leave. So they hire a third party, an intermediary, Willie McKay in this case, and 
he goes around to different clubs and say, hey, this guy Emiliano Sala is available. This is what he might cost and so on. I, I, I get that part. What I'm not 100% clear on is, A, the sheer amounts that change money for that job, when in fact, I would expect Cardiff may not have a director of football type, but I'm sure they have scouts. You know, Emiliano Sala is, you know, it's not like he's he's playing in Upper Volta or Burkina Faso, as it's now called. He's playing right there across the channel in France. You may not follow Ligue 1 that much, but you can see his name among the top scorers. Gee, who is this guy? Let me Google him for a few minutes. Let me find Bob, who speaks French, and let me ring him up. Let me find out. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm. I don't understand. Why do clubs have scouting departments if they can't find these people on their own? So this idea that, like, oh, you know, unless Willie McKay puts or, or somebody or an intermediary puts you in there, that doesn't really sit well. It doesn't seem to be very efficient. Well, Paul, it was rumoured as part of Paul Pogba's British record move to Manchester United, his agent, Mina Raiola, allegedly earned £40 million. Now, many tend to think of these deals as a one-person operation when it comes to the agent. Is it a surprise to you? Uh, no, I, I think you know football agents or football transfers these days, uh, uh, you know, it, it could involve four or five people, uh, as, as, as has been pointed out with this, uh, the seller transfer, I just think generally around players, you, you won't have one agent who deals with their day-to-day you know, operations. It could be three or four people. I remember last season when we did a, a column with Benjamin Mendy, I remember going over to Barcelona to do his first column where he was doing his rehab and his agent was there, his PR guy was there, his social media guy was there and he had his chef with him as well. This is how you know modern, modern footballers operate you know this is how so when it comes to transfers it doesn't surprise me that so many people are involved quite often you know players are represented by family members you know brothers uh, or or sisters who who can't who do not have who sometimes don't have the full kind of understanding of how transfer works Uh, players just want to cut their family members in on their success which is understandable but sometimes they'll need a they'll need a lawyer to get the get the deal over the line, you know, and they will look for look to other PR companies as well to get involved in, in their client as well. So it doesn't surprise me that there's so many people involved in in a transfer. That's just how modern football is. What we'll, we'll say about this Peter Ryla thing, and obviously these are enormous sums, is that it's slightly different because he's actually Paul Pogba's agent. Mm. So he negotiated a deal with... Juventus where, and again, it is one of those things where, you know, he was certainly paid by more than one side on this, but I think all the sides knew about it. He negotiated a deal where he got the equivalent of a big slice of his transfer fee. He was paid by Pogba to to represent him in the negotiation with United. And um, I believe he may or may not have been paid by United as well, but it's different when you're clearly, you're acting for the player and the player, you know, keeps you around. I think... Sometimes some of this intermediary work that, in some cases, is something that, you know, you wonder why why clubs can't do some of that legwork. Right, time now to find out how we got on in our weekly predictions game. And in the battle of the top two in the championship, Gab, you predicted an easy win for Leeds. I predicted a high-scoring draw. What neither of us predicted was an easy Norwich win. So it was victory for the Canaries that sent them top of the championship. Yes, well done, Mr. Fark. Fark? 
Daniel Farker. Farker, Farker, Farker. We both predicted a Tottenham win over Newcastle, although we both went for a 2-0 win as opposed to a 1-0 win. Mm. In uh, Ligue 1, Lyon were up against PSG on Sunday night. Now, I plumped for PSG. Gabby went for the draw, but it was Lyon who inflicted the very first defeat of the season on PSG in France. But when it came to the Premier League on Sunday... Oh, you have a smile on your face. I was, I was perfect, Natalie. Mm, you were. I correctly clocked that... Manchester United would uh, win 1-0 at Leicester City. And, uh, of course, I had City beating Arsenal 3-1. That's exactly what happened. Meaning I am victorious, and uh, I closed the deficit on Natalie. It's now 12-11. It's <laughs> 12-11. Wow, you've jumped up. Well, I get extra points, don't I? This is a margin uh, of victory, right? Adjudicator Charlie, Charlie, I think, is going to tell us something different. 12-7. 12-7. Enough of this as I gloat in my victory. Uh, how about some uh, quick hits instead? Chelsea bounced back from the midweek humiliation to beat up your team, Hughesy. Huddersfield, 5-0. Do you see anything to suggest that Sari might not be the out-of-his-depth, deluded weirdo that some have depicted? Um, I'm sensing sarcasm in this in this question. Um not from Saturday. I mean, you know, beating Huddersfield 5 0 at home with a new manager shooting fish in a barrel, really. I think the difference for Chelsea on Saturday was Higuain played, which I think going forward should have a big difference for them and get Hazard playing where he should be and they can link up better. Whether this means his system is going to work in England, I don't know. It's, you, can't, you can't judge it on Huddersfield. Um, he's obviously not a deluded weirdo, but. He's very wedded to a fixed way of playing, which will probably take time. Um, Oliver Kay wrote about this in his column on Saturday in the paper and saying Chelsea need to change, not him. I can, I think that suggests Sarri has picked the wrong club rather than Chelsea picking the wrong manager because they ain't going to give him two years. One word answer. Moy is back. Billing is very, very, very big. Are you holding out hope? No. OK. Oh, Spurs leave it late, but eventually overcome Newcastle one 0 with Hyungmin Son grabbing the winner. Uh, Paul's got, he's got nine goals, five assists in his last ten games, and some are talking about him as a Player of the Year contender. So, what say you? I don't see why not. I think he's. If you look at his goal scoring record this season, he's actually got a he's got a better goals per minute record than than everyone but Aguero. Uh, he's got a goal every 127 minutes. So. I just don't see how he can be overlooked. He's, you know, obviously helps Spurs while while Kane's been absent, and he's managed to fit in a trip to Asia and back. So, yeah, I say he definitely deserves to be up there. Okay, but not to win it. We're, we're, we're being polite. It's here. A contender, a contender. What? Why not? Because he was gone for a period when Spurs actually won games when he wasn't there. He hasn't played that many games or scored that many goals. Virgil van Dyke, Virgil van Dyke, Virgil van Dyke, if Liverpool win the title, how does it how is it not Virgil van Dyke? He'll be he'll be on the short list today. So top That's five. Fine. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Give him some credit. Natalie, one for you. Can you explain what's going on at 
Swansea. <laughs> well, I will try. You know a little bit here because, of course, they used to be in the Premier League. Yes, yeah, so you that know of them. Ago. Yeah. I, I, I've heard of them. Yeah. <laughs> now, I know some of the characters involved, maybe even. Indeed. Okay. Well, on Saturday night, Hugh Jenkins ended a 17-year spell as uh, the Swansea chairman by handing in his resignation. He took over with the club on the verge of relegation from the Football League, but he oversaw their rise through the divisions all the way to the Premier League as well. Um, his relationship with supporters soured, however, since the takeover by the American owners Jason Levine and Steve Kaplan in 2016. He did stay on as chairman despite that sale, but the Swansea Supporters Trust have pointed, oh, you're giving me a sound? <laughs> <laughs> no, please continue. <laughs> um, the Swansea Supporters Trust have pointed to the disastrous transfer dealings of the past three seasons that eventually led to the club's relegation. They called for his resignation after transfer deadline day when no signings were made, but there were outgoings, the likes of Wilfred Bonney, uh, Jefferson Montero and Tom Carroll were so Old, potentially damaging, of course, their playoff hopes. And he resigned them after Saturday's 2-0 defeat at Bristol City, which is a sad end for a man who, not that long ago, was garnering a lot of praise for what he'd achieved at Swansea. Did he ever explain the Michael Laudrup agent deal? <laughs> no. no? I don't think so. Yeah, I think I think those, those Swansea supporters trust people know what I'm talking about. Mm, okay. Uh, Crystal Palace picked up Mishi Bashawai on deadline day and Christian Benteke is back. Palace got another three points, this time against Fulham. So Matt put Benteke and Bashawai together and they should be staying up, shouldn't they? Yeah, I don't think they'll start together very often because I can't see Roy picking Wimfit, Townsend, Benteke, Bashawai and Salah. I mean, that would be... That'd be awesome! It would be fun. But um, it would be fairly um, offensive. Um, yeah, I always thought Palace would be would, would be would be fine. Obviously, they rely on Zaha too much. But Batshuayi, he's a goal scorer. He doesn't like to move. Doesn't contribute anything else. But put the ball in the penalty box, he will uh, score. So I think he's an upgrade on Benteke and um, a good signing. Burnley share the spoils with Southampton on Peter Crouch's return to the top flight. Welcome back. But Hursty, what got into Ashley Barnes? Uh, yeah. The non-penalty was one of the worst calls we've seen in a while, but surely he's facing punishment for that stream of obscenities he hurled at the match officials. And, and yeah. why do these guys just sit there and take it? <laughs> As we look at a picture of um, this incident this morning, and, and there's still of the assistant referee who just stood there without an expression on his face. I just think, what you know? How awful must that feel to have this guy yelling straight into your face? It's um, Sends out an awful message, and I think he should he should face some kind of punishment for it. I, you look at the reaction of the crowd, and they've got their hands over their mouths, as if to say, you know, all right, calm down, actually. Um, I mean, it was it was a terrible call, as you say, but I just don't think it gives Barnes the right to go straight up into the linesman's face and, and yell at him uh, incessantly. I thought it was pretty pretty bad form from him. Gab, come on, one for you then. I know it was Friday, so it's a while ago now, but Qatar won the Asian Cup. How relevant is this with a view towards the 2022 World Cup? I think it is relevant because people have waited for a while for them to put out uh, a decent team. Um, they won this in difficult circumstances because they, they, the tournament was held in the United Arab Emirates, who together with Saudi Arabia are part of this blockade against uh, Qatar, which for political reasons... Uh, that meant that, that means that, like there's no direct flights. There were virtually no Qatari fans, except for this Korean woman who uh, who works, I think, at the Qatari consulate in Seoul or something. They didn't concede a goal until the final. They beat Japan in in, in the final. Um, there's some controversy because 
two of their players. There's issues about who I think are one is Iraqi, the other one's Sudanese uh, origin, about whether they're eligible or not. That complaint's been thrown out. And, uh, you know, I think the standard this time around, the Asian Cup hasn't been as high as previous ones, but, you know, they won it and they only conceded a goal in the final. So all credit to them. That's it for now. Many thanks to our excellent guest today, the one, the only, the Matt, the Hughes, and also down the line from Sheffield. Sheffield, not quite as nice as Huddersfield, right? No. Wrong no. bit of Yorkshire. Wrong bit of Yorkshire. Sorry. Sorry, Sheffield. It's Paul Hurst. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We're going to be back on Thursday looking ahead to Pep Guardiola versus Maurizio Sarri. Manchester City versus Chelsea. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 